You're listening to the Doxology and Theology Podcast, where we promote, encourage, and equip gospel-centered worship. For more information, visit us at doxologyandtheology.com. Basically, what let me tell you what this uh, particular session is all about, so you can decide if this is what you thought it was going to be. Uh, you're not going to embarrass me if you say, that's not what I thought, uh, or if it's exactly where you need to be. So my goal in this next hour is to talk about our calling as worship leaders and how, um, how one of the greatest gifts we will give our context is our ongoing growth in the gospel. That's why you know, I'm titling this uh, conversation, Made for Wonder But Prone to Wander, the Gospel for Worship Leaders. And what we're going to do, we're going to look at a remarkable uh, story psalm, Psalm 73, which tells the story of a vocational worship leader uh, in God's story, Asaph. And uh, in fact, if you have a Bible with you or something electronic that you can get your eyes on Psalm 73, I would encourage you to go there. It's one of the most helpful psalms that we can study to see modeled for us in the Word of God, a songwriter, uh, a worship leader in the temple, someone that worked under King David, someone that, that does what we do as, uh, as professionals and as volunteers. And uh, the, the gift is going to be, as we see, that this is, a, this is a very real psalm. It's a raw psalm. It's a psalm that, in essence, shows us what it means to do our own story work in the context of God's story. Um, If I didn't use that language last night, um, I I, I try to most of the time. The language of of thinking about your own journey as, uh, in the gospel, we are characters in God's story that we might be carriers of God's story. We're both characters and carriers. as a character in God's story, that means the gospel's coming to us. We are objects of God's affection and subjects in His kingdom, but we are objects of His affection. The gospel, uh, as we mentioned last night, was not just about getting us into heaven when we die, but this process of, as image bearers of God, entering in more fully to the life that Jesus has won for us. And that will go through, language I used at the end last night, that will go through the repentable parts of our stories and the repairable parts of our story. Maybe good if I put those words up here, not that you're having a difficulty discerning my North Carolina redneck accent, but I labor to enunciate because we sometimes drop syllables in North Carolina and we put in extra R's, but uh, the repentable and the repairable, and I'm not sure that I even know how to make these things work. We don't. You get that. Repentable, i.e., where is the gospel going to further expose parts of how I have chosen to do life that reveal my... um, that reveal my commitment to still avoid Jesus. Um, um, and the repairable parts are what are perhaps wounds or parts of my narrative that, that I've never brought to a throne of grace and perhaps those um, parts of my brokenness and weakness uh, as the grace of God further accesses those. Uh, you know, I become a healthier woman, a healthier man. I become someone that, that poses less and pretends less so that when I am leading the people of God in worship, it is as a lead worshiper first and a worship leader second. Now that language, lead worshiper, uh, one of my favorite images of what that looks like alongside of John the Apostle that we saw last night, a man living in doxological wonder, falling down before the Lord, the more he understood of everything that Jesus has won for us, and alongside of the Apostle Paul, who wrote epistles even as he worshiped. One of my favorite stories of a model of a lead worshiper is uh, in John 4, the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. And think of her story. 
course, we know that uh, she's, uh, there's a part of her that's living um, a, a, a closed down life. She, uh, she's uh, afraid of this confrontation with Jesus. At the well, he pursues her. She tries to deflect and make a conversation about Samaritans and you Jews. And, and we know Jesus is pursuing her. And uh, Jesus says this to her so remarkably, and he says it to us today. If you knew the gift of God and who it is speaking to you, you would ask and you would receive living water. Well, that, that's, that's always what Jesus is saying to you and me, even as his justified sons and daughters. If we knew the gift of God, the whole salvific enterprise, the whole wonder of what salvation by grace alone through faith alone involves, if we knew the gift of God, if we knew more of the gift of God, and if we knew who it is that's speaking to us, namely Jesus, we would ask and we would receive even more. Well, where does she go? Here's where this lead worshiper motif is so beautiful. We know that uh, Jesus uh, names her sin and continues to show his great love for her. And then she goes to her city. Remember that glorious declaration, she goes to the very environment where she was known as a notorious sinner. And she says, come see the one that's told me everything I ever did. Could this not be the Messiah? So in that sense, she's a lead worshiper. She didn't have a guitar strapped on. She's not, you know, doesn't, doesn't have a, a portable keyboard, but the overflow of the sense of living water and, uh, and being comfortable in her own skin as someone that really needs Jesus and has found Jesus, she invites others um, to come to see him and know him. That's the best thing that can happen. Whether we are leading a Sunday school class of three-year-olds, or whether some of you are serving in churches with multiple campuses and you've got to drive from campus to campus, no matter how big your platform or how seemingly insignificant, and we should never use those words about anything concerning God's worship. Always, in whatever environment, to be able to declare, come see the one that knows me and loves me and knows you and loves you. This is what we're gonna see in Psalm 73. So let me pray for us, and then we're gonna walk through this remarkable picture of our being made for wonder, but our being prone to wander. So. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thank you so much for this delightful room full of your image bearers. Lord, uh, uh, we are all in this room marked by unbelief because if we truly knew more of the gift of God, if we more fully knew you, Lord Jesus, uh, greater would be our freedom, uh, more observable our health, uh, more um, marked by grace and mercy would be our relationships. Uh, more honest about who we are, more hopeful about who we are becoming. So, Lord Jesus, God the Father, God the Spirit, would you help us in the remainder of this hour just to see in this one psalm um, our calling, uh, our, our calling to, to be known, our calling to know you more fully, are uh, calling to realize that there's nothing more than the gospel. There is just more of the gospel. So Lord, help us now. We pray that uh, by the time 430 rolls around that uh, we will be able to say, we saw Jesus in the text. And uh, in seeing him in the text, uh, we love him more and trust him more. Father, to this end we pray, in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. So Psalm 73, let me, um, let me read through the psalm and then we're going to walk through it. And, and appreciate with me, even as we start reading the psalm, like all of the psalms, this would have been sung in certain contexts of Israel's corporate worship. So as real as it is, as honest as it is, as personal as it is, this shows us this should be happening in our churches. You know, if, if, if um, the culture of our churches were mar more marked by this psalm, the reality of the psalm, I think we'd find more non-believers in our communities intrigued with what's going on and where we gather to worship the Lord. 
uh, because it would, uh, they would experience us with greater humility, greater kindness, uh, a, a greater care for them uh, and not treating anybody as a project. So word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God for his word. This is Psalm 73, um, one of 12 Psalms that Asaph wrote. Uh, I should mention this briefly about this remarkable man, and you can do some of your own research. Asaph's ministry as a worship leader had him serving under both David and Solomon. Now, among other things, that means he got to see a lot of crazy. <laughs> you think your church staff has got some brokenness, and maybe it does. You think it's difficult working in your situation. Just even briefly, if you think about what it meant for Asaph, perhaps to, to be very aware of David's season, David's season of brokenness and a man after God's own heart, you know, uh, living through the Uriah and the Bathsheba chapter. And then parts of Solomon, you know, obviously Solomon lived a pretty long life, but um, uh, this, this worship leader saw difficulties in those for whom he worked. That's just a sidebar, so don't start detaching from me right now. Okay, all right, let's, or naming names. Um, Word of God, Asaph writes, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Let's stop there for a moment. Um, what we're seeing by way of introduction is that obviously this is a psalm, a story psalm of Asaph looking back on a chapter in his life. Now we don't know how long that went on. Was, that, was it days, weeks, months? Uh, but he's going, to he's going to describe a significant season of a disconnected heart. Uh, as a worship leader, he continued to show up and do his responsibilities, but a radical shift had happened in his heart. And uh, he, he's looking back, he's, he's using this language of, you know, I, uh, I, I almost lost it. Um, once again, verse 2, my feet had almost slipped. That language will show up later in the psalm, by the way, this, this language of slipping, slip sliding away, uh, old Paul Simon song. And uh, in verse 3, we immediately see where he's going to take us. He's going to start talking now about what his internal world was like, and maybe nobody in the congregation even knew what was going on. Do you know what that's like? You don't have to, you know, I don't want you to confess your sin by nodding your head, but sometime you realize when you're leading worship, um, you know, emotionally, it's like you'd almost rather be anywhere else than there. Just what, you know, you've got stuff going on, whether it's at home, whether it's in your body, you just sometimes know that, okay, I've got to push through this thing. Well, Asaph had a season like that. And, and look at how he described it. I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now notice in verse 4 how he begins to describe um, the people that began, the people and the situation that, that enamored his heart, that, that fueled his discontent of the wicked, he said. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice, with arrogance. They threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven. And their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High have, does the Most High know anything? Verse 12, kind of a summary statement here, and he's looking at the people he envied. This is what the wicked are like. Always carefree. They go on amassing wealth. And now in verse 13, 14, we see uh, uh, the gift, really the, the, the gift of the place he was sitting in 
um, before the Lord of the gospel really began to meet him more deeply and bring him to a place of perspective. Look at verse 13. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been afflicted and every morning brings new punishments. Stop there for a moment. That's if you want a good definition in the scripture of a pity party. Um, Asaph has gone into a pity party and cut up his own confetti, confetti and thrown it in the sky. But you know what? He, he didn't have to tell us that story. He didn't have to, he didn't have to in retrospect, let us know. This is, this is what it began to feel like for me in the ministry of leading God's people in worship. Uh, he didn't have to give us that gift, but uh, here is, I think, an appropriate gift of both transparency and vulnerability. Now, what's the difference between the two? And as worship leaders, we need to know the difference. Um, transparency is when you can give data from your story that really, you know, uh, is true information. It's, it's a part of who you are, things you've lived through, things you're experiencing. Uh, transparency is more uh, giving data, even sometimes, of course, costly data. Vulnerability is when you move in to feel the impact of that material. Um, mentioned last night briefly, and I'm, I'll circle around because I'm going to give you some parallels in my story with Asaph. Uh, when we concluded last night, I intentionally <clears throat> uh, called reference to the fact that the last 10 years of my pushing now 67 years of life, the last 10 years have been seeing how the gospel is bringing me into a part of my story that deeply, deeply marked me. And, 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 and I avoided it, denied it, but it would only be the power of the gospel, the grace and truth of Jesus that would enable me to finally name, own, and begin to process that chapter of my life called childhood sexual abuse. Now, I, I say that now, I'll come back to make parallels for us as we think about um, why, why we who are made for wonder, knowing, loving, living with uh, shame-free um, exposure before the face of God, made for wonder, why are we prone to want? Why do we wander? And what does our wandering look like? Sometimes you're going to find out, like with Asaph, there's seasons you go in that you lose perspective. And... Uh, we're going to talk in a minute about the two main reasons why we wonder. But the, the good news is, as we'll see, is that that's exactly where the Lord's going to meet us. And it's when we're honest. It's not that in your worship leading, it's not that in the public forum, it's where you process all that stuff. You know, it's, it's obvious that Asaph did a lot of work before it came time for him to write a psalm about his story. But uh, I would say to all of us, again, I, I don't know what community looks like for each one of us. I don't know what alongside of your responsibilities as volunteers or vocational staff, um, uh, what it looks like for you to have meaningful, honest, connected relationships where you could say, uh, here's what well, I, I call my group a gospel posse. You know, a gospel posse is just uh, here, here at least in all your relationships is a group of people that are committed to know Jesus, to love him, to grow in grace. Um, to hold each other accountable, not just for spiritual disciplines, but holding each other accountable for believing the gospel. Sometimes the most core accountability we need is to believe that Jesus is who he tells us he is and who we are in him. Uh, it was really in a context of uh, important gospel friendships that I've been processing parts of my story uh, as I get older. And, and I believe that in every season of our life, Jesus' words in Luke 4 apply to us when Jesus stepped into a synagogue and announced himself as the one that Isaiah was speaking of when he said, you know, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me and he has sent me to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and to set the captive free and to break oppressions. That's not just about you becoming a Christian. It's every season of your life. Where are you not as free as the Lord Jesus intends? Where is oppression still a part of your story? What, what, what have you yet to be able to bring before the Lord? And with whom will you be doing that? Vulnerability is owning that. Transparency precedes that by naming it. You actually see there's parts of your heart and life. 
And so let me, let me even, before I go further into the psalm, let me, uh, let me talk about this uh, in terms of uh, even um, this phenomenon of uh, wandering. Uh, you may want to, if you're a note taker, at least there's a couple of things I might call attention to that you might want to write down. And I'm not, su- I'm not suggesting if I don't see your hand moving that you're a spiritual pygmy, okay? Uh, but there's two, there, we, we tend to wander by one of two gravitational pulls. We tend to wander. What would wandering be? Well, we see Asaph wandering. He's showing up, going through the motions, but, but he's envying, he's looking, he's wanting, he's desiring, he's coveting. He's a, he's a discontented, disconnected man. We tend to wander uh, about these two gravitational pulls. Number one, we tend to wander in order to fill our emptiness. Or number two, we tend to wander by medicating our pain. Uh, these are not the same. We, 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 uh, we will tend to wander. That is, we, will, we can continue to you know, uh, l- learn the music, show up, sing the songs, engage, perform, but there can be this disconnect in our heart, a subtext, a storyline in our souls that we're wandering, we're drifting. And it's either to fill emptiness or medicate pain. Now, what would I mean by filling emptiness? Well, it seems to me that in Psalm 73, that might be a little bit more indicative of what was going on with Asaph. Uh, he's envying the arrogant. Uh, and what would that involve? Well, he's, he's looking at people. I mean, he told us he's looking at people that had position, prosperity, power, and peace. He described those. We read through the first part of Psalm 73. and. He, he describes a, a group of people, whether they were outside the temple courts, were not believers at all, or maybe they were even uh, showing up at worship, but they had more money than him. They had an easier life. Life is not full of hassles. And, and, and Asaph wanted more of that. Now, we, we can kind of discover, you know, that propensity to wandering when we read the Ten Commandments, right? You know, if you want to, if you want to know where our heart can go apart from a functional gospel, just read through the Ten Commandments. You know, beginning with, have no other gods before the God who is God. And uh, but then, you know, beautifully, the Lord shows us in the Ten Commandments, when you throw your heart in cruise control, uh, coveting is kind of a default mode. You want your neighbor's house. You want your neighbor's spouse. You even want your neighbor, neighbor's cattle. I mean, we, we've got these, uh, you know, let's, let's go back to the Garden of Eden. Um, God gave us good longings, right? You know, there's, there's nothing really wrong with desire and longings. But when they get hijacked by sin, that's when we go crazy. I mean, think about the life that God designed for us in the Garden of Eden. If you read through Genesis 1 and 2, we see Adam and Eve uh, given a lot of stuff. I mean, starting with a whole world in which they were called to fill up the earth with God's glory. You know, you got to think of the good gifts, the good longings God gave Adam and Eve. God gave Adam and Eve, first and, first and foremost, a desire to know Him. I mean, that the longing, first and foremost, that's most core is that we would live in shame-free nakedness before the face of our God. In fact, let me mention that verse, uh, Genesis 2.25 is, I think, a fantastic summary of what we want more than anything else in all of the world, but don't know how to get it. Genesis 2.25 summarizes life for Adam and Eve in the garden. The man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. That is far less about the physical relationship between a husband and wife than it is simply the first two image bearers of God before the gaze of God felt no shame, felt no need to cover, pose, or pretend. They were that home in relationship with God. Now that God happened to be the triune God. It's not that they you know, had a, an awareness, you had a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but God has always been Trinity. God is always perfect relationship. God is always perfect intimacy, passion, and delight. In Adam and Eve, in their state of innocence, they were most at home before the gaze of God in relationship with God. And God gave them, think of the tons of the good gifts He gave them. 
raw stuff of creation, which they were to build culture from. They were to till the earth. That wasn't work as we think of work. It was a joy, creativity, uh, you know, enjoyment. You know, and in fact, when we would ask ourselves as worship leaders, where did Adam and Eve go to worship the living God? The most appropriate answer is everywhere. You know, there was no need for special space before the fall for them to gather and to say, here's where we go meet with God, everywhere. So everything they did was an act of worship, an act of revealing the beauty of God, an act of knowing God. There was no separation between uh, sacred and secular. And, 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 and isn't that magnificent, by the way, when you think about it? You don't, you know, you don't drive to the church building because you are so whole and integrated Everything you do is done to the glory of God, as we were hearing this morning from Aaron about just this calling of all things to the glory of God. That was Adam and Eve's joy, passion, and delight. And you know what? Let me give you a taste of hope. That's what we're going to be doing forever in the new heaven and new earth with the completed family from every race, tribe, tongue, and people group. And we'll never even be tempted to sin again. In fact, our future is the Garden of Eden on steroids. We're not going back to the garden. That was the preview of coming attractions. See, the beginning of the story anticipates God is writing a far greater story where we will be finally and fully whole. Every aspect of our bodies, these bodies will be resurrected, right? You're not going to get a new body. You're going to get a renewed body. Uh, God's not going to destroy this world as we know it and annihilate it. He's going to make it new, renewed, which is good. So we are in a story of, of restoration, not replacement. Now that is going to connect to you in a minute in terms of looking at Asaph and saying, what does the gospel for worship leaders look like? But this theme now that you know, we, are, we, are, we are made with desire, we're made with good longings, but because of sin and death, they get hijacked. And rather than gratitude, we have greed. In, in the place of intimacy, we have lust. In the place of stewardship, we have ownership. And, and Asaph loves us enough to say, when I threw my heart in cruise control, here's exactly the ditch I got into. I coveted everything in sight, complained, whined. Everything I saw, I thought, my life truly sucks, and they have it better than I do. And this theme, of course, in, um, you know, uh, his self-righteousness, you know, I did it right and look what it got me. I kept myself pure and they're out there acting out so destructively. That's where a graceless, disconnected from the gospel heart can take any of us, any of us, any of us. So maybe Asaph shows us what a wandering heart looks like in terms of if you're not aware of the Romans 7 tension in your heart, you know, the things you want to do, you don't find the power to do the things you don't want to do, you realize that's the very thing you do. So an, an honest growing Christian is you accept your weakness, your brokenness, and you accept the fact that until Jesus comes back and he glorifies you, we're capable of anything, all right? So we wander by, we wander by, some of our wandering would be defined by filling the emptiness. But others of us, and some of you may be like me in this point, uh, this second theme of we wander by medicating our pain. When you are hanging a picture in your home and hit your thumb rather than the nail, what's your first instinct besides saying something loud, hoping no one hears it? Uh, what do you do? You put it in your mouth. You grab that, you know. Ouch! And I don't know where, you know, ridding into the genetic code that starting to suck our thumbs again would really, you know, be soothing. Started, you know, my daughter came out with a callus on her thumb when she was born. She sucked her thumb in my wife Darlene's womb. So there's something about we want to medicate pain. We want to medicate. And of course, that's a, that's a feeding instinct for a child. But, um, but let me talk briefly about medicating our pain. And this is where I'll, I'll just share a little of my story with you to help you understand uh, in, in your life, but also people that show up in front of you to sing the songs of Zion. It's incredible hymns you teach them, the, the invitation you give them to come and behold the goodness of our God. Here's a lot of the reasons why that's hard. Here, here's obstacles to that. Um, some of us are doing life more in terms of not being ambitious just to get more. 
you know, uh, good chance that a lot of you are not living most of your days now just complaining and whining about what you do not have and plotting for the next bigger church, plotting for the bigger, you know, whatever. But, but, but some of us may be wandering in a place of disconnect because of uh, pain in our heart that we don't know what to do with. And there are a lot of people in our churches like that. Now, let me, let me tell you a little bit of my story here. Let me, uh, let me talk about what owning my wander has required of me. So, um, and I'll be very brief with this because I just want to honor the fact that we will be done at 4.30 because at 4.30 I get in the car and drive back to Franklin, Tennessee tonight <laughs> to see my wife and one of her grandsons that's spending the night with us. So I'm not running out of here too quickly, don't get me wrong, but I want to honor your time frame for sure. So let me tell you a little bit about my story. Um, so I've had two major heart wounds that I have avoided until 50 years old. I was born 1950, February 1st, which is Groundhog's Eve Day, right? Groundhog's Day is February 2nd, so Groundhog's Eve is February 1st. So um, um, my most important growth in terms of some of this stuff has happened, uh, happened while I was a senior pastor in, in, a, in a thriving, growing church, a church that went from from five couples to 4,000 people in about 10 years and a lot of credible movement happening outside of me, but so much work of the gospel needed to take place inside of me. Now here, here, here's, here's a short version of my story. Uh, two, two events deeply, deeply impacted my soul, wounded me deeply and set me into life limping in a way that all of my relationships were impacted. My marriage, my parenting, my friending, my pastoring. In fact, I, uh, when I tell my story in more of a extended version, uh, I, I talk about how I, I became that pastor. Uh, no, I won't talk about uh, theoretically. I became the pastor who was most comfortable basically living the story of the Wizard of Oz. Now, have most of you seen the movie, The Wizard of Oz? I assume if you're an American, you've probably seen Wizard of Oz. Do you remember that scene when uh, Dorothy and all of her broken friends make it to the Emerald City? And, you know, and I'll try to describe that scene. There's, uh, you know, Oz is not standing with them, but all of a sudden, Oz's voice gets real big and there's kind of peels of green going off and on. And it's, you know, it's kind of like, oh my goodness, this is kind of scary. And here we are. And, and all of a sudden, Toto, the little dog, leaves the merry band of broken friends. You know, a lion that needs what? Tin man needs, straw man needs, and Dorothy wants Kansas. But Toto, did it leave anybody out, by the way? Is that all the friends? I think that's right. It's the body of Christ, by the way. Anyway, you want to look at it here. That, that's the body of Christ represented right there. But Toto walks away, and then Toto, we see camera right going in, and there's Oz, and Oz is behind curtains, right? Just kind of, you know, Dorothy wonders, where'd Toto go? Well, she follows Toto in, and lo and behold, there's Oz, and it's like, she's kind of like, you see Dorothy kind of like, why are you in here? pushing buttons. Uh, in essence, it's almost like the scene is saying, Oz, come out and join the rest of us. You know, we, we don't need you to be Oz the Great. And, 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 and Oz was projecting an image, right? I mean, Oz really did not have all that power. Oz was behind curtains having an impact in a world that offered hope to people when really the best thing Oz could have offered would be come out with the rest of us you know, and own the fact that you're ordinary too. See, as a senior pastor, I learned to do life because of deep wounds in my heart. I learned to do a lot of, of behind-the-curtain reality. I was far more comfortable holding the microphone, talking to a bunch of people in multiple services than really risking what it meant to own my own brokenness and to enter into the community of the broken. And by God's grace, I had a burnout at age 50 as a senior pastor. That was really one of the most important gifts God could have given me. And it, it, it was you know, pretty much comprehensive uh, emotionally, physically, spiritually, mentally. I became toast, just worn out. 
and the worn outness was from wandering, running, you know, let me do my thing, let, let, let me do this thing called ministry, but don't pursue my heart because of the fear of being exposed as the man that I was. And I can tell you, this is the very, very brief version, but uh, from age 50 and in the last 15, 16 years, um, I'm discovering uh, and more honest to say that I had no idea the depths of how much shame and fear had defined my inner world. A lot of shame, a lot of fear. You know, if Adam and Eve before the fall were at home before the gaze of God um, and had no shame, by the way, shame in the Bible is always a phenomenon of the fear of being seen. Shame is always fearing being seen as I am and wondering what will happen as a consequence. If you really know me, if I'm really seen, if I am exposed, what will happen? Will, will, I, will I explode? Uh, will, will I die? I mean, shame is one of the most powerful forces on the face of the earth and fear as well. So he, here briefly in summary, then we're going to get into how the gospel functions in our stories and hearts and, and the good news for all of you to know that that will continue to be our calling to groan and grow in grace, to see more of Jesus, that we might share more of him in the context of where the Lord has placed us. So uh, uh, the, the, two, the two wounds that I had basically put Romans 8.28 band-aids on and never processed before the Lord or in good community were the fact that I'm going to start with uh, the second one, then I'll work back to the first one. Two wounds at eight years old and 11 years old. Let me start with 11 years old. Um, <clears throat> when I was 11, I came home from, uh, uh, it was in October of 1961, came home from uh, the Graham Elementary School as a sixth grader, expecting to see my mom's car in the driveway. Uh, my mom um, had been uh, w working, uh, as my dad has been working very hard. They, they lived in a narrative of both living through the depression, so, um, uh, my dad, especially, who grew up in a very depressed family, determined never to owe, never to owe anybody any money. So the, the, the MO in our family was you always work hard to pay for stuff before you get it. And that would mean a house, too. You pay cash for a house or you don't get it. So my mom and dad worked real hard. They bought the house that we were living in at that time. And my mom no longer was working. So I expected to see her car at home. Car was not in the driveway, so I decided, and that was kind of odd, I expected to see her, so I went fishing in a local pond, caught a big catfish, brought it home on a stick with my little rod to show mom. Car was still not there in the driveway, only to see our neighbor coming across the front yard, uh, Mrs. Peters, and uh, she wasn't looking at my fish or my rod. She simply said, Scotty, I hate to tell you that this morning your mom was killed in a head-on car crash. Now, some of you have lost earlier in life a parent or a friend or someone very significant to you. So that's not unusual. But, but let me tell you how that story played out in my family system so you can begin to understand how sometimes heart wounds gain more power that, 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 that grace alone is sufficient to deal with. The, I have one sibling, a brother three years older than me named Moose. Now Moose is not on his birth certificate, but he got that early in life because of a hat he used to wear. Uh, from the Archie comic strips, there was a character named Moose, and my brother had that hat. But Moose was 14, I was 11. We're sitting in our neighbor's home waiting for our dad to come home on the eve of our mom's death. To let you know how, how uh, our family system worked, our mom was everything. She was the center of the universe of affection and touch. If there was laughter, it was mom. Dad paid for life, mom was life. And so our dad came in the home where we were staying and remember his words, he said, do you boys know what has happened? And we said, yes. And with that, he walked right by us into another room and we all slept in three different homes that night. No touching, no embracing, nothing. The absolute void of even in the very first moment processing this life-defining loss. Uh, as an 11-year-old, I remember just because, it, this is just my story, it's not yours, but, but I, I had to come to see how this set me up to medicate my pain in life in unhealthy ways and how it impacted me relationally. Um, 
you know, I did not want to go to my mom's, well, I never went to my mom's funeral home to see her body. And I, you know, we weren't a part of a family system that you would do the normal thing, even the difficult thing. So I did not see her body at the funeral. I remember sitting as an 11 year old right in that front pew in our little church. And you're thinking, there's a box, my mom's in there uh, and she's not coming out. And then dr driving to the cemetery and uh, come on in. And driving to the uh, uh, nice color blue you're wearing today, by the way. I'm <laughs> glad, we got the, glad we got the message. Um, going to the cemetery in that car that you never want to sit in as a kid, a hearse, and, and, and sitting there and people and flowers and a big pile of dirt. And you're just knowing, that you, uh, you know, well, I, I, learned, I learned in that moment, I can look back now and see it, uh, detachment. The, the, you know, what, what does it mean to be in the presence of such trauma that to survive you detach? You, you just emotionally go somewhere other than to really move into that experience. And the death of my mom, you know, moving forward, I remember this first couple of weeks, um, hearing my father uh, wailing in the far end of the house and me burying the head under a pillow. And again, never one time after my mom died that a father and two boys get together, weep together, talk, process. That just was not our family system. Because mom, who's now gone, was the sum and the substance. She was the common denominator in our system. Well, what that did, that set in play a life of, of, of running from that pain. But see what had happened three years earlier that I referenced last night. Uh, three years before that, uh, a prior wound had marked me so deep within my soul. And uh, the, the specifics are not important, but let me give you enough of the data. Um, um, there was a, a neighborhood, an uh, older uh, young person in our neighborhood that we all respected. An incredible athlete and uh, that kind of person when you're really young, you look at and you think, I hope I grew up to be. And uh, my story is that, um, like it often happens in sexual abuse, uh, I was groomed for the day when this person allured me into a barn um, behind my Sunday school teacher's house. And, uh, and there in front of me was laid out, and I'm eight years old, so this is three years before my mom's death, but uh, laid out on the floor was a bunch of pornography, and as an eight-year-old, you're seeing all this, and there are no categories to begin to understand what you're seeing. And I'm in shock, someone I trust, and, and the next moments, um, uh, he, he hurt me um, uh, deeply and, and marked my soul more than he hurt my body. And uh, the trauma of, of abuse at that age and then moving into the loss of my mom, these were two substantive heart wounds that I did not know what to do with. Well, what did I do with them? I did not know Jesus to start with, not that automatically just because you know Jesus, you know how to process trauma, wounds, and loss. So that, that goes into my story. Again, I don't have time for because legally I have 17 more minutes here. Uh, and it's enough, it is enough. Uh, but uh, it, it started the journey of me finding ways to medicate my pain. Uh, first thing I began to do after mom's death uh, was I found medication in food and I discovered the cookie jar. And because my father was a professional photographer traveling, uh, I'd come home and the house is empty except uh, the cookie jar was full. And so I discovered comfort food before Paula Dean ever invented the phrase. <laughs> and uh, whoever first invented uh, comfort food. And, uh, and uh, anytime you begin to trust in something to medicate your pain, that really doesn't get to the core of the wound. Um, what happens is, in, in a sense, uh, uh, there's an idol structure there that begins to be in play. The uh, Bible talks about idols of the heart. When we begin to uh, over need certain things and find a way to have that need met, I wanted comfort. Comfort's a good thing, but if you make comfort an ultimate thing, you sabotage the right way of getting comfort, right? So when I was, uh, by the time I started the ninth grade, I was five feet tall and weighed 170 pounds and had the nickname Meatball. My self-awareness wasn't, you know, I should be, you know, weirded out about that. I just knew this works. I, I like sugar, I like carbs, and so this is a way I'm feeling comfort, I find comfort. Well, here's where evil hates beauty. 
So as a ninth grader, and this is, you know, I'm going to just say a little bit more about this because I want to get in the second half of the psalm and show us Asaph's gift and where the Lord's been meeting me. And I know where he's been meeting you guys and will continue to meet you. Um, I'm a ninth grader, start my first year in high school, walking up the hall is that fearful ninth grader in a ninth through 12th high school. And I see the head football coach coming towards me. And I think this is going to be good. I cut his grass. He's a neighbor. He's safe, right? And he's going to say my name, Scotty, how you doing here? Welcome to high school. And can I help your way around? And I've got friends and I'm thinking my friends are going to be impressed that coach knows my name. Well, here's what this man did. He didn't walk up and say, welcome, Scotty. He didn't even mention my name, but he renamed me. He uh, looked at my feet, looked me in the eye, looked at my feet, kind of looked at my midsection. Then is what he said to me in front of my friends. I would be so ashamed if I had a body like yours. And then he walked right on by. A man of power, a setup, just took a chainsaw to my soul. And I became that moment, that guy so self-aware that I should be ashamed of who I am. When the Bible says there's power of life and death in words, you know, you, you've got your moments too, right? You, you could perhaps remember some of the more painful names or words or moments you've experienced. Well, as a ninth grader in that very fragile environment, that went so deep, but with, with compound interest. I'm not aware of the fact that I've been sexually abused. I completely put that on the back burner. I pushed that down in the big toe and tried to rename it something else. I knew my mom was dead and I was trying to cope through life, having personality and kind of doing life. And, and you know, we, we, we learned to adapt to stuff that really for survival. Well, that followed me all through high school and the different things I went to, started looking to for support and love and comfort, acceptance and significance. And finally, I did become a Christian in 1968, which is the beginning of my journey. But for the sake of our time, let me tell you where, um, let, me, let me invite you to look at the rest of the psalm and I'm gonna make the parallel with the journey of gospel for worship leaders looking at Asaph and then making in the remaining time we have the parallels about, yes, Asaph, thank you for paving the way for me. All right, so he, he, here's what I'm sharing with you uh, as a 50 year old man through burnout. When you're burnout, you've got no resistance. You're, you're, I kind of refer to that season and you don't have to be burnout by the way to really to go to important places of growth in your life. But know this, the Holy Spirit is going to bring you to the point of crying uncle that you might cry Abba. Now crying uncle is kind of God arranging circumstances so you really do see your need. I mean, think about maybe already in life some of the things you've run from owning. And, and you run and you run and you run. You might like be like Jonah. Remember how God pursued Jonah? It didn't look like fun, but it really was for good. Think about the father pursuing hiking up his skirt, pursuing the prodigal son that went to a faraway country. You know, he was so convinced I'm going to die when dad sees me because I've blown it. But, you know, he got kissed. The father running after the self-righteous older brother. Our God runs after us. He's, we're prone to wander. Our God's very prone to run and catch. Hallelujah. You know, you, that needs to be true in your heart because when you stand in front of your congregations or your youth ministries, the Lord's pursuing the people you're leading. And it's awesome when you know that and you can say, me too. C.S. Lewis once said that friendship begins when you can look across the table, look someone in the eye and say, me too. It's like, I don't have to pose or pretend. Well, notice what Asaph models for us. He's given us the gift of, of his wander. But now we begin to see reconnecting with his wonder. Look at verse 15, Psalm 73, 15. We'll see now Asaph giving us the gift of, so what do you do when you are self-aware enough to say, Lord, I'm making choices that are so contradictory to what your word says. I'm making choices that I know the consequences aren't good. Or Lord, I hurt, I ache, and, 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 and now, something's got to change, right? So look at verse 15. He says, Asaph says, if I had spoken thus, 
If I'd spoken out like that, I would have betrayed this generation of your children. When I tried to understand all of this, meaning when I tried to understand what was going on inside of me, when I looked and I, got, I became such an envious, bitter, angry, self-pity-filled man, when I took all of that in, when I tried to understand it, it deeply troubled me, verse 17 is pivotal, till I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destiny. Let me make a comment here, verse 17. Asaph is not saying life was really difficult until I got in my chariot and drove back to the temple. Folks, I know you know because you lead people in worship that you know is true about them. Just because you go to the church building doesn't mean you can go to Christ. Uh, Asaph's not talking about, I, I, oh good, I got back inside the temple courts. No, the phenomenon of sanctuary first shows up in the Garden of Eden. Sanctuary is the presence of God. Sanctuary isn't a building. Sanctuary is, is, is Eden. Uh, sanctuary is going to be for us the limitless new earth. Don't you love the way John describes the new earth, the, 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 the templeless world of the new earth? I looked for a temple and there was none because God himself and the Lamb were the temple, right? We want sanctuary. And, and what Asaph is saying, I, I really needed to, to get with God. And, and for me, that happened through finally, by God's grace, realizing, Scotty, you're not a healthy man. Three things my wife said to me over the course of 17 years, sometimes people that you live with say very disruptive things. And by God's grace, if you listen sooner rather than later, some of you are smiling like, I'm in, I'm in that story. But, uh, or I'm, I'm trying to be that person to my spouse or whatever. But here's three things my wife said. When we moved from Winston-Salem to Nashville, Tennessee is when my wife started working in the internal world of the disruption of her story. She grew up in a, a very broken alcoholic family. Parents divorced when she was five. Father was a raging alcoholic, a charming man when he wasn't drunk. She had two older sisters. Oldest was bipolar, middle, just had, had some very difficult choices. Her mom was married four times. And she, my wife Darlene, was a hero of the family system. A lot of burden to carry for a little girl. Uh, she started getting healthy when she moved from Winston-Salem to Tennessee. Sometimes transition, sometimes change puts us in a place to begin to say what's really going on inside of me. Darlene started getting healthy. Here's three things she said over the course of several years. First one was, Scotty, and she sat up in bed one night, Scotty, I don't think I really know who you are. Sounded like an odd phrase to me. Uh, I was not sure what she was talking about. So I said, well, you know, I love my steaks medium rare. You know, I love Carolina basketball. You know, she wasn't talking data. She getting healthier knew that God intended a greater emotional intimacy in our relationship than we were enjoying. A few years later, she said, and this is when our church was planted and we started having this gospel revival and you know, God's doing all kind of stuff. She said to me one day, one afternoon, honey, why do you suppose you're so much more alive in the pulpit than you are at home? I said, Unique question. You know, I think in my mind, I probably thought, well, honey, it's just the anointing. The Holy Spirit comes upon me. What am I? I, I agree. Isn't it awesome what happens in that pulpit? She wasn't applauding my pulpit life, but why could I not be present in her heart and the heart of my two kids? Why, why, why was there more energy, more life, more connection anywhere but with the people? You know, and that, that was the Holy Spirit talking. Third thing she said just before I did burn out, she said, Scotty, I want to get healthy with you, but I will get healthy without you. Not with a finger in my face, not, you know, rolling pin in hand, because she was growing and I was proud of her. Trauma of her abuse was far deeper than mine and I was so happy for her, but my heart was so frozen. I was so emotionally stuck. I was as thankful God was using me out there when others were beckoning me out there. Well, I entered sanctuary. Sanctuary for me involved good Christian counseling. Sanctuary for me involved, you know, uh, letting some of my friends through. I'm, 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 I'm gonna come out from behind the curtains and really walk in the community of the broken. And here's what I discovered. And, uh, and let me, uh, let me uh, conclude our last several minutes with this theme. Notice what, uh, what uh, let's jump on down to verse 21. Because here, uh, Asaph is showing us how it's possible for you to be 
a worship leader and yet stuff being going on inside of you that nobody knows but the Lord and uh, and he really is willing to meet you there. Notice what Asaph says in verse 21. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. What a beautiful way of describing, Lord, thank you. I entered sanctuary, first of all. I didn't find shame. I came to my awareness that if I got what you really gave me, my feet would slip just like those that live this way. They'll end up slipping down a slope that no one wants to be on. Lord, I realize now in your presence and your grace and your mercy and your welcoming heart, O oh Father, this is what it was like inside of me. I was a grieved man, bitter man, senseless and ignorant, acting like a brute beast before you, even as I carried on my ministry. Folks in psychology, sometimes that's called schizophrenia. In two minds, you know, we get so adept at high functioning out there but internally there's disparity. The good news for all of you is whatever your story, whatever your sin, whatever your disconnect, whatever your wounds, and this is true for the people you serve, there is grace. And that's where we conclude this Psalm and I'll make some gospel parallels. Look at verse 23. Uh, verse 23, we have now a picture of Asaph saying, Lord, uh, as this broken person, who was trying to fill up my longing, thinking if you gave me a different house, a different job, better health, you know, something other than I have, I would have been full. He realizes now that was not true. Just like I needed to know, God, it's not gonna destroy me to begin to process the death of my mom and the way I've lived my life uh, in such an unhealthy way, living for far more of a driven life than a called life. Well, here's what we discover in the gospel, verse 23. Yet I'm always with you. You hold me. Look at the past, present, and future of the gospel. I'm always with you, Lord. Lord, I was senseless and ignorant, yet I'm always with you. Why? Because you got a hold of me. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will take me into glory. Look at the past, present, and future of the gospel here. And, and I'm using this now, of course, as all scripture leads us to Jesus eventually. We can read this psalm with gospel eyes and understand, where did the Lord get a hold of us? Well, certainly in creation, but, but in, in our coming to faith in Jesus' experience, you know? And he didn't give us, God the Father did not give us a second chance. He gave us the second Adam. You know, uh, we're, not, we're not in a redo, we're in redemption. He got a hold of us. And, and last night we were looking at some of that. How big is grace? Well, we are already declared righteous in the sight of the living God, already put in our account as the very righteousness of Christ. Already now are we forgiven of all of our sins, past, present, and future, word, thought, and deed, and not just the 4% of the sins we're aware of. See, you know, this is, this is, this is a, a part of the way the gospel functions. We need to know this is the most defining good news uh, the Lord has gotten a hold of us by sovereign grace in the gospel. And he is guiding us. He's working in our stories. Um, Lord, you guide me with your counsel. I think sometimes as a pastor, I, I was more comfortable talking than listening. I love to give, you know, I love to preach. I love, love to tell people the good news when really God gave me two ears and one mouth and I needed to adjust the ratio of listening. And, you know, and it, it took me being burnt out to get to the point where I would really listen. You know, when I really began to listen, a lot of those fears and the shame, when you have shame in your core, you're convinced that people will not want you if they really know you. When you have fear, you just know your wildest fears will be realized. And I, I festered those cancers in my soul. I fueled the fear and the shame, tried to compensate by being busy, doing ministry and all this stuff. And, uh, and yet the Lord, um, the Lord is guiding us. And afterward, it will take us into glory. And that means that uh, the Lord indeed will finish the story he began. Um, a few more verses here. I'll make a couple of comments and uh, honor our time frame here because we're going to pray pretty soon, get you out of here. Notice where the psalm goes. And here, here I would say, look at the contrast between, between Asaph as bitter man, disconnected heart man, uh, a man that needed to repent and a man that needed repair. Same way for me, I needed to repair these wounds, healing, because they led to all kind of sinful choices, ways of doing life, where I became a workaholic and tried to blame it on God. 
It's all for you, Lord. Yeah, I've got, a, I've, got a, I've got an angry wife, but oh Lord, I'm willing to have an angry wife just to serve you. There's good gospel reasoning, right? <laughs> yeah, Lord, I know, you know, my kids don't really know me very well, but Lord, I put them upon the altar of your kingdom's work and they're yours anyway. I gave them to... Foolishness. But you see, unnamed wounds, undealt with longings, foolish acting out can take us into so many crazy stories. When here's what we really want. Look at the way the psalm ends. Verse 25, whom have I in heaven but you? And not, I really want heaven, but Lord, heaven itself is you. Lord, what I want is what Adam and Eve had even I want more than what they had. They were just innocent. I want to be your daughter in whom you delight through the gospel. I want to be your son. I want to know that you have made me yours, that I, I am one among a people in whom you greatly delight. You rejoice over with singing. You quiet with your love. Whom have I in heaven but you? And being with you, I desire nothing on earth has nothing I desire but you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it's good to be near God. I've made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. Now, what would I say here in summary? I hope you just got a little taste, first of all, in Psalm 73 of this is the God you know, love and serve. He's got broken children like you, like Asaph, like me. You don't have to pretend. You don't have to pose. You can trust him to, in different seasons of your life, bring to the surface parts of who you are that the grace will be sufficient for. There is, we sh you know, we could have gone on four more hours last night. There is saving grace. There is sustaining grace. There's transforming grace. There's the pedagogy of grace. Grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness. There's sanctifying grace. Grace is everywhere but I've got to be willing to accept the diagnosis. Like you, when I go to the dentist, what do I want more than anything else? A little card for a six month later visit, visit, a new toothbrush and a packet of floss. Thank you. And tell I don't do it very often. <laughs> Forgot what it was. There you go. And, and, and yet sometimes they say, um, you know, the x-ray showed you got a, you got a couple of cavities. Ah. You know what, isn't it far better to know you have a cavity? I've had one root canal. Now, fortunately, it wasn't as bad as I feared. You know, root canal used to be the ultimate metaphor. Of, it's like a root canal. It, it, it was okay, uh, so I have to get a different metaphor. But, you know, decay will kill you. You know, with the gospel, the gospel's already exposed us as needing the perfect righteousness of Jesus. And hallelujah, we have it, right? The gospel continues to show us you're not as free, you're not as healthy, you're not as whole. But here's the good news. He giveth more grace. Friends, in conclusion, th you know, thank you for letting me give you just a little bit of my story. And I hope it drew attention to Jesus, who is the Savior. But I, I want y'all to have permission. Um, most of you are not 50 years old, but even if we were 80 years old, the Lord meets us at whatever age. Walk in community. Um, you know, if, if there are any connections today from Asaph or my story that you would say, oh my goodness, you know, is he my first cousin removed? Then I got good news for you, whether you're my cousin or not. The Father loves you and their gospel is for you. The gospel is for believers just as much for non-believers. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this marvelous conference, Lord. I know it's been a full day and some of us now are ready for a nap. Been a good full day and before supper, maybe a little nap would be great. But Lord, in this hour, we do believe that you have spoken to us through your word about Jesus and about us. And Father, I pray for, for any uh, Lord who would even begin to say, I really, really needed this hour. Father, for those your spirit is prepared for the invitation to look at wounds, whether it's abuse, whether it's loss, betrayal, neglect. Lord, we're not looking to make excuses for our choices. We're looking for information that would make the gospel more tangible to us. Lord, thank you that you have grasped us and you're never going to let go of us. Thank you that you are guiding us. Jesus, you are a good, involved shepherd. 
Father, thank you that you will complete the good work you began. Give courage to these in this room, Lord, that need to move forward from this very hour into conversation with friends. And Lord, and if some of us in this room were raised in that healthy of healthiest of all Christian families, tucked in, read to, sung over, never don't even remember the day we became a Christian because believing the gospel was so natural. We were cared for, nurtured. Lord, let us know that we're the exception rather than the rule. And a lot of people we lead in your worship, Lord, uh, are battling unbelief, battling shame and fear. Increase our compassion, increase our capacity to enter into people's stories that we might move more fully into your story. Uh, Father, thank you. One day your tear wiping hand is not just gonna wipe away the tears, but redeem the pain behind the tears. And may that hand uh, reach through our services of worship into our congregations and friends. Lord, this is what we pray. This is what we trust you for. This is what we thank you for in Jesus' name. Amen.